This is the Home Service Expert Podcast with Tommy Mello. Let's talk about bringing in some more money for your home service business. Welcome to the Home Service Expert, where each week, Tommy chats with world-class entrepreneurs and experts in various fields, like marketing, sales, hiring, and leadership, to find out what's really behind their success in business. Now, your host, the home service millionaire, Tommy Mello. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Home Service Expert, where we're going to talk about things to grow your business. Today, I have Kevin Wilson on the line. And Kevin comes from quite the background. He's done a lot of different investments. He's taken companies public. He started several franchises. Uh, Kevin, do you want to talk a little bit about what you've done in the past and why our listeners should be listening right now? Sure, Tommy. And it's, 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 it's nice to join you here. Um, yeah, my, my background, in a nutshell, I started my career after college working for a management consulting firm called Bain & Company. For those of you that don't know Bain, it's, it's considered one of the large strategic consulting firms. And most of our clients were very large Fortune 500 companies. I did that for several years in the Toronto office and then down in the Dallas office where I spent most of my time. I always wanted to get back and start my own business. I was, I was very entrepreneurial throughout high school and university. And so I, uh, I left Bain to start uh, a retail bagel store called Benny's Bagels and did it with a couple partners. Uh, we grew that business to 30 locations over a few years. And then we ended up selling it. All the stores were in Texas. Some are still there. Uh, we ended up selling it. And then I got recruited to be part of a turnaround team in the airline industry, which is where my background was at Bain. Uh, the airline in this case was down in South Africa. So I went with my wife to South Africa. We were down there for three years, had a successful experience with the airline. We had our first child was born there. And then when we came back to the U.S., we landed in Virginia Beach, which is where she's from. Uh, and I've been here ever since. And that was early 2000. Immediately at that point, I got into private equity in Mexico, of all places. So I was commuting a little bit between Virginia Beach and Mexico City. One of the things I'm most proud of in that experience for several years was the creation of an airline. So I leveraged my experience at Bain and then at South African Airways and wrote a business plan for the creation of uh, Volaris, which to this day is sometimes number one, sometimes the second largest airline in Mexico. It's got about 70, 75 aircraft and uh, flies all over Mexico, Central America, and the U.S. That commute started to become difficult. So I, it, I, I landed in, in Virginia Beach and with two other partners, we had uh, three funds of capital that we invested in early stage, sometimes pre-revenue, pre-profit companies. A number of those businesses were in the franchising space. So I had uh, my previous experience with franchising. I leveraged that again in this space and we made several investments. And then after about eight years, I really had a, a desire to get back into an operating role and um, something that I like to do and lead teams. And an opportunity came along locally. Some guys had started a business called Mosquito Joe. And uh, they had a couple trucks. And I liked what I saw and decided to uh, buy the company. Uh, we put some money into the company, $3.5 million, and then hired a team of five people to begin uh, to start to turn this two-truck operation into a franchise operation. Those five people are with me today. So about six years later now, we've uh, grown Mosquito Joe to uh, 285 locations we'll have open that are open right now this season. Along the way, we pivoted a little bit and became decided to become a multi-brand franchising company. So our first, our second brand was Pool Scouts. That's our take on the residential pool cleaning business. And for those of you that know that business, you'll know that it is uh, it's incredibly fragmented uh, and also very unprofessional too. So it was an opportunity to use a lot of the tools and skills that we learned in Mosquito Joe servicing homeowners and bring those, bring those skills to uh, the pool cleaning industry. And then our third brand, which we're going to begin franchising next month, is called Home Clean Heroes. We've been incubating it now for about a year, and that's our fresh take on uh, the residential cleaning segment. So we're really excited about that brand. So that's where we are today, Tommy. Hope that's yeah. enough of an over. That's absolutely incredible. I think uh, I've had a lot of people on here and a lot of successful $250 million companies, but you're blowing me away with this stuff. I'm really glad you got to get on here today because I got some great questions that I want to know. And I know the listeners out there want to know. At Bain, you were responsible for fixing problems. You went in and you 
really, you just went in and found the problems. Tell me a little bit about some of the biggest problems that you experienced. And I know it might not have been all home service industry, but there's got to be some commonalities between the simple problems that you would face at Bain and some of the things you've ran across during the last 10 years. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, at Bain, you know, normally we would be brought in by the CEO or the board of directors and, and they usually, the great thing about being a young kid at that age is you're working on the most important problems that that company would face. And you can just imagine what they are. They could be anything. So in the case of the airline we worked with, it was Continental Airlines at the time. They were losing money. They had no, no pricing strategy in place. They didn't know which routes were profitable, which ones weren't profitable. So analysis was done on that. Their maintenance operation, they were a high cost provider of maintenance operations. So we helped them quantify things that they should be able to focus on versus things they should let somebody else do. And lots of different things that I worked on. But what I really learned when I worked at Bain was one, one, be very data driven, be very metrics driven in everything you do. I mean, sort of, you know, know the data and the data will set you free and really give you a lot of good insight into what's going on with your business. And so that's been a common thing that I've used across my career in all businesses is, is just be very metrics driven and understand that. So that would be an example of what I learned working in a, in a big, big organization like Bain and uh, working for big companies like Fortune 500 companies. That's absolutely great advice. And I think that some of the home service experts out there don't use the data enough. They, they really, I always talk about dialing in your CRM to know the numbers and really knowing your accounting and your uh, QuickBooks or some people use some different advanced accounting systems, but I think simple is better in that regards. I got a great question because I've met some of the guys that started some of the biggest, there's a company called Direct Energy that actually bought out some Jim Abram and some of the other guys that started at Terry Nichols. And basically what they did is they went out in the seventies when they started selling AC units. And this was, this was back in the day where air conditioning units weren't as common. And, and I believe it was in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So it was an add on unit to the furnace. And then uh, basically the way that I've heard the story is Jim Abrams kind of got shafted because they got together with GE and people cut in front of him in line to be the, uh, the CEO of the company called train, which is a big air conditioning unit producer. So they got big into residential Jim went on his own. He started doing financing, started doing all these service agreements, really built the business. One hour air was born. And then they did the same thing with the electric business, Mr. Sparky. And then they did it with plumbing, Benjamin Franklin, punctual plumber, Sure. So what they did was, and I want to hear your story on this because this is the biggest company in home service by far. I mean, their, their revenues and what they've done is they started franchising it as well, but it basically built the best practices. They went into a city like St. Louis and then they went into every city and they got all these air conditioning companies that come in and they said, look, here's what you get. If you come on our best practice schooling or whatever you want to call it. We're going to give you get access. You get a discount on all everything you buy. Cause we worked out manufacturer discounts. You get access to our CRM, which is still used today, which is an amazing CRM. So we'll be able to tell you exactly what KPIs to focus in on. You're going to get consulting. You're going to get the best practices. You're going to get our handbooks. You're going to get everything basically ran it almost like a franchise, but then they were able to kind of sneak behind the curtain and see what companies were kicking butt. And then what they did is, they promised everybody when they do an IPO, they're going to make everybody millionaires, which they did. They made hundreds of millionaires. And, uh, but they didn't necessarily start in the franchise model. Can you talk to me about that kind of licensing deal and being part of a better practices versus going into the franchise? Because franchise really, in my opinion, is starting from scratch. You're not going to get a ton of people that built a really successful business doing millions of dollars and say, I'm going to dump my brand name and switch it to this. So we get this question quite a bit when it comes to the biggest companies in the space. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think my experience with licensing per se is, is somewhat limited. My experience with franchising is much greater. And what you see, in, in, especially in home services, the, the Dwyer Group as an example in our industry, also a very large home services franchisor. Yeah, a lot of the franchise they get what are called conversions. 
So these are these are groups of mom and pop scattered across the country that want the power of a brand name, they want the power of a system, the consulting, the CRM, and then they convert. And usually, you know, everybody has different mechanics for how the conversion is done. But a lot of the time, the re- the existing revenue is grandfathered in, so they don't pay royalties on their existing business, and then it's only on new business that's generated, or for a period of time, it's grandfathered in. So it's, it's a really attractive way, I think, to become part of a larger system and leverage the brand. And I think that's, you know, my experience in home services is it's probably the area where conversions where you have a huge benefit is the development of a single brand and, and understanding some of the marketing. It's certainly an area where we emphasize a lot. And it's, it's an area where most people don't have a lot of experience, especially the mom and pops. So you got three and a half million dollars and you've got a company called Mosquito Joe's and you've got a couple trucks and you just like the concept. And I'm very familiar. There's a company called Moxie. I meet with the owners probably once a month and they, their whole plan was to go door to door and they, they get a lot of customers at a time. He said it's a nightmare, but you know, now we have thousands of happy customers in Phoenix and, and it's hard to manage that. But how do you start? You get three and a half million dollars and you got a couple trucks. Tell me A to Z your game plan on how to build the franchise from that model. Yep. Absolutely. So, you know, it, it started with the creation of the plan. And so, you know, even backing up before I got the three and a half million, I created a plan and the plan was based on what the, those two trucks were doing, what I thought they could do in a, in a territory size that we, we developed. And you, you first have to prove out the unit economics for the franchisee. I got convinced the unit economics were there. I put a plan around those single unit economics and how fast I thought we could grow the business. And that plan I took to the investors. And then the investors put their money in. I then went out and I identified some people to hire. So I hired a, a finance guy, a marketing person, an ops person, and a development person, and myself. And we got together. And the first thing we did is a number of different work streams. First thing we did, though, is we rebranded the company. So Mosquito Joe was like every other brand in the mosquito space at the time. And the thing we liked about it was the name. Uh, we didn't like anything else really about it. It was the name and they had some customers and they proved out the, the unit economics. So we went through a full rebranding process with a, with a large agency that cost about a hundred thousand bucks. We got our operations manuals completed. One of our guys did that. We put together the structure, the plan, the, the development plan, so all of the documents came together, the franchise disclosure document, the operations manuals, and then the, the brand guide and the support that we were going to provide. And then we began offering franchises and we went to all the states, including the registration states. Uh, we put about $400,000 the first year into advertising to recruit franchisees. And I think it started in October. So we closed on the money in June. We started in October and November, and then we sold our first franchise in January. We specifically went to market with a very low franchise fee where our competitors were at $25,000, $30,000, our franchise fee. And we told ourselves, we can increase it whenever we want. But for the first first group that come in, we want them to know that we're in this together. We don't, we don't want to make money on the franchise fee. We'll make money on our royalty downstream with them. And so it was $7,500 for the first franchise fee. And probably the first... 10 to 15 franchisees that bought territories, that's what they paid. You know, our franchise fee today is about $30,000. And then we just, we began growing. And then as we grew, we put our systems in place. We figured out when we needed to hire people in advance. And then we just, we had a very, you know, detailed plan each year and each month as to what we wanted to try to achieve. And, you know, looking back on it now after five years, you know, we've been in it six years. When I look back on that original plan, we were very, very close. In some cases, we did better than the plan. In other cases, you know, slightly, slightly behind, but generally right on plan. And it was just a series of just thinking through what's possible and then getting input from, uh, from the team. So one of the coolest things that I think you said that I'm really interested in is you went out, you found your marketing guy, your ops guy, your finance guy, and those guys are all still with you. Then you found the uh, development guy and yourself. Tell me a little bit about what you look for to build a team like that and make sure they all mesh together and kind of just, just how you built a team. Because I think that's, 
that alone in itself was probably the biggest thing that built the company. Obviously, you've done a lot of right things along the way, but putting that team together, it was huge. How did that come about? Yeah, so I think you know, bringing on any, anybody, obviously, the, the trust is a big thing. My development person, uh, Walter Yule, I, I'd known him for a long time. I had actually invested in a business where he was the uh, president of, and his true expertise is on development. And uh, he's recruited more franchisees than most people in the in the industry. And so, uh, but his skill set was much larger than that. So he was great to have on board right from the beginning to create the development document, talk to the initial franchisees. The woman I hired for my marketing, Angela Zerda at the time, she had no background in franchising, but had worked at a, a large agency in Austin. So we had really a, a breadth of marketing. And so, you know, so on and so forth. And so what I looked for was, I looked first at the competency that each of them had in the roles that I needed to have them in. And that's really important. And then the second thing was, you know, are these people that I could work with day to day? You know, we, over time, we've refined our hiring model. I'll talk a little bit about that later. But, you know, for me, it was, you know, I want to get a great team that I can work with who are going to push and challenging me. But I really need people that are good in their areas and people that would be a good fit, if you will, for the company. And so that's where it started out. You know, they're all with me today. They've all got stock in the company. I've got an incentive unit plan that I've created for everybody. So not only are they are they paid market wages, which was one of the reasons why I raised that much money. I wanted to get good quality people. I didn't want to bootstrap it. Uh, and then I wanted to make sure that they're incented. So they've all invested money in the business and they've all uh, they've all got incentive unit options as well. So how does that look? So they've invested money. So you basically gave them the ability, is it phantom shares or how does that work? No, they're real units that they're real units. They're they're junior to the uh, units that uh, had money invested, but we had, you know, my background allows me to run that, this type of process because I used to do this a lot. So I, I share with them what the financials of the company look like, told them what the investors bought in at, give them the opportunity to buy in. So sometimes we have investors. I have about 50 unique investors that put up the three and a half million dollars. So from time to time, I'll have an investor call says, you know, Kevin, I've got something that happened in my life and I'd like to you know, sell some of my shares. You know, I give the first right to my senior leadership team if they would like to buy them. I tell them how I think about the pricing of the, uh, of the shares or the units, if you will, and then they buy them. And then in terms of the incentive units, the incentive units are just, they're a certain strike price based on whatever the last price was that was uh, sold at. So they get the upside above that price and then they're vested over four years. If for some reason they leave, then I have the ability to buy those uh, units back at fair market value. Got it. It's very incredible. I will say that at the least, the way that you've structured it and your background obviously allows for that. And uh, I think that a lot of people could learn a lot about Really taking care of the top people in your company and making sure that they all have an opportunity to buy in because when it's theirs, they tend to make better decisions to help the growth of the company. Am I right? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I've always, you know, you know, I never wanted to be that guy that gets to the end, whatever the end is, and uh, have a lot of success. And that success hasn't been shared with the team that helped bring you there. I think, you know, the people in Silicon Valley... California, they understand that from the very beginning in terms of getting the best and the brightest and making sure they're incentives. You know, it's the same type of thing. You can do that across all your companies. But I, you know, we're all, we're competing for talent. And in our space, we are too. We happen to be in a labor market right now that's really, really tight. You know, I like to think that we've created a great environment here and that my senior team is incented. So they're not looking for other opportunities to move around. That's what I'm hoping we're creating. Yeah, absolutely. Culture and leadership are such a huge attribute in a company your size. Tell me a little bit, I've read about six books and I've really challenged myself on this question. What are the advantages of owning a company? And like I said, whether you're doing licensing deals or just owning it outright, and I, I know a lot of them because you don't, your brand doesn't get damaged as easily, but versus the franchise fees and talk to me a little bit about the franchise fees just between what it's going to cost between your attorneys to get it going. So both of those, just the, the good and bad of each, like a SWOT analysis and just the startup fees with the lawyers to get it going. 
Sure. So you're, you're talking specifically, so an entrepreneur that's got a, got a location that's doing really well, and he's trying to decide whether he wants to franchise it or whether he wants to grow corporate stores? Correct. Yeah. So I, the way I think about it is I look at a couple of things. One, I, I, I look at the unit economics. So is this a business where uh, high volume business where you can hire quality management and pay them well so they treat it like their own and then you can continue to grow that way and you've got the capital available to grow corporate stores? Or is it something where you might have high employee turnover, it's low volumes, in our case it's seasonal, maybe having local content, local connections is, is important. So when I looked when I looked at this, I said, yeah, this is a perfect franchise opportunity because of this. So we immediately said, that's the way we're going to grow. In fact, all of our services, we've said, we're going to be the franchise franchising company. We're not going to own corporate locations. We've got one or two locally that we own. So in terms of starting out, I think, you know, one, to pull together the franchise disclosure document with the lawyer and get everything ready, you're looking at maybe forty to $50,000 to get all the branding done to really launch it and... Uh, you know, you're looking at maybe a hundred thousand to get all the CRM set up. So you you know get your phone systems, all the all the software you need. We use all cloud-based software, so we don't build our own software. So, but there's a lot of you know upfront setup fees. You know, maybe another fifty thousand, and then you've got then you're going to fund your losses. You know, in the first first couple of years, I think you should you know probably to start a franchise business if you're going to do it well hire people, put the development budget in place, you're looking at three to four million bucks. And I've done this now. This what we're we're about to launch our third franchise in the last few years. And as we put our plans together, it's all coming in at around the same price. You know, for us it's a little bit better, but still two and a half to three million bucks to launch something. So I think if somebody wants to get into it and they really want to do it in a meaningful way where they can scale quickly and not bootstrap it and make long-term decisions versus short-term decisions because they're constrained by capital, then I think, you know, you're looking at three to 4 million bucks. Got it. That's very interesting to hear the numbers to really build a company that you're, did you say 280 now franchisees? Yeah, we got 285 locations open for Mosquito Joe that's been done by about 150 franchisees. So we have most people okay. do development agreement and take more than one territory. Yep. Yeah, I love that. Uh, that. That's a great opportunity. If somebody's kicking butt, the franchisees, the franchisors should give them the opportunity to own plenty of them, right? Right. So you guys take it just a percentage. Is it like, you know, how does that work? If, I'm a, if I want to be a franchisee of your business, tell me a little bit about I put up the 30 grand uh, and what do I get and how does that kind of how am I paying the royalties? Yeah, sure. So it's a total investment for Mosquito Joe or Pool Skits. They're all around the same price. It's around eighty to ninety thousand dollars, and that includes the franchise fee. But it's so it's, so with that, you've got it includes working capital. You've got to get a truck. You know all the things that are are outlined in the um, in our item seven of our franchise disclosure document. And then in terms of what you how we make our money is we largely make our money off of the royalty that we charge, which is 10% on net revenue. And uh, that's how we make our money. It's paid to us on a weekly basis. And it's, uh, it's, it's fairly straightforward. We have other requirements in our agreement that, that make us a little bit different than other franchisors. So one of the things that we require, and this gets a little bit, uh, Tommy, to what I was talking about earlier, I said, you know, our experience has been is that most people don't understand marketing. And so if I get take somebody off the street and I give them 5,000 bucks and I tell them to put together a marketing plan for a local business, they wouldn't really know how to do it. And most of our, many of our franchisees are that way too. So we said, if that's their biggest pain point, we need to be the best at that. And we need to have the best programs so that we can support our franchisees. So on my team, I've got in-house graphic design people I've got dedicated SEO people. I've got uh, direct mail expertise. So we handle the bulk of the marketing budget on behalf of every franchisee. So we have a a $30,000 direct mail requirement, three different mailings that hit every targeted household in their territory. We have an SEO requirement so that, you know, we feel that anytime somebody's doing a search, 
we want to rise to the very top. And that includes a pay-per-click requirement. We want that to, to rise to the very top because so much of the way people are finding people now is through, through their iPhone, through the net. So we handle all that for them. And uh, so the support, and then we have dedicated franchise business coaches as well. So the support we provide, I think, is pretty significant, much more so than what I've seen from other franchisors. But a lot of it really is emphasized on the, on the marketing support. So all the marketing, so if I'm a franchisee, I know for a fact I don't have to work on Money Mailer or Valpac. I'm not trying to figure out who to hire for SEO and build links. I'm not trying to do a PPC campaign. All that is handled for me. That's exactly right. We do all of that in, in, in totals of $30,000, $35,000. You know, the franchisees' requirements are hire great technicians, take care of your customers, and then do some other local outreach that we can't do remotely. So go talk at civic leagues, get banners hung at pools or ball stadiums or soccer fields, uh, do the grassroots, uh, you know, guerrilla marketing. You know, what we provide is the same level of service with the same marketing budget for all territories. What we found is the ones that really, really take off are the ones that do that extra extra little bit and really embed themselves within the community. So, but for, for the most part, you know, it's, I mean, it's been very successful getting the phone to ring for our franchisees. We do other things as well. There's, uh, you know, we, we survey every single customer a few times a year and we get what we call the net promoter score. If they get high scores where it means they've got a lot of promoters. So we use that information and we create lists for them of people that they, customers that they specifically can call who are most likely to refer them to other customers. Uh, so we, then we have a referral program in place. So there's a lot of, this is going to get a little bit to the metrics and stuff and the data and how we use it, but there's a lot of stuff that we do to really support the franchisees. So the net promoter score is a fancy way of saying, would you use us again and refer, you, for, refer us to friends, family, and neighbors, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. They rate you on a scale of one to 10. If they give you a nine or a 10, they're considered a promoter. If they give you a seven or eight, they're passive. They're sort of indifferent. And then if they give you a six or lower, they're a detractor. And so you get the total possible score you can get is anywhere from a negative 100 to a positive 100. I think Mosquito Joe right now, system-wide, when I checked yesterday, I think we were at 70%. And to give you an idea, 70% would put us at a very, very high end of net promoter scores. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. that's, like, that's like up there with Apple and other iconic brands. So, yeah, that's a metric that I look at very closely. That's, an, that's on average. And we've got some franchisees that are much lower than that. And those are the ones that we can then focus on to understand exactly what's going on. But it's, a, it's an important thing to do. And we send out thousands of these surveys every year. So the net promoter score is basically what a lot of venture capitalists look at before they'll buy a company and they'll take your data, your customer data, and they'll send that out to develop that before they really want to do that. Is that correct? Because I've read a lot of books on the net promoter score. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it was started, the net promoter score was actually developed by a partner at the old firm that I used to work at, Bain and Company. You know, it was in their customer loyalty uh, practice. And it really is. It's a great measure because it's a single question that's asked to everybody. So everybody's getting the same question they asked. And so you can compare scores on an apples to apples basis. So we really like it. So they look at, you know, somebody looking at buying a company, they're definitely going to look at net promoter score if you have it. If you don't have it, you should have it. Uh, they're going to look at your retention rate of your customers. And they're going to look at the referral rate of your customers. They're going to look at a lot of things. But those are three real important things to understand how good you are at you know, attracting and keeping and engaging your customers. So one of the biggest problems that I have seen with most home service companies is their call center and their follow-up process. I think those two are like huge, huge. And follow-up, follow-up, follow-up and call center. Who do you have answering the calls? Is it corporate or the franchise or is it the franchisee? Yeah, it's the... So the way we've handled that, and uh, and I would just underscore exactly what you just said, Tommy, probably is the biggest challenge is uh, is that. So we have a VoIP system in place, and so we're able to track all call metrics, but we let the franchisee get the first crack at it. And if it, after uh, a number of rings, I think it's three or four rings, if they haven't picked it up, then it rolls to a call center. 
the call center that we use is more of an answering service. We just want the customer to speak to a live person. You know, if they speak to somebody live and they've given their message, the chance of them going somewhere else is less than if they had to leave a voicemail. It's not ideal. So our call center that we use is not a sales function. It's more of a message taker. Ideally, we want the franchisees to sell it. They're local. They know their business. They know their area really well. That's ideal. What we do, though, is we track we track the calls and the call metrics. And so if we see calls coming in and a number of them, too many of them are getting diverted to the call center, or if we see the calls coming in and they're not being converted to customers, those are all things that we track and give us opportunities to better help the franchisees. And so we'll reach out to them and say, look, it looks like you're having a hard time converting customers who are calling in. Let's take a look and figure out why that is. Are you pricing too high? Are you not asking for the sale? What it, I mean, this is a very easy business, easy sale to, uh, to make. Uh, so what's going on? Um, and it just allows us to do that. And it also points out, you now in some cases, if we have absentee owners, you know, they love being able to see this because they've hired somebody to answer the phone for them. And if they're not doing it or if they're not doing it well, they want to know that as well. So it's just another way that we can help. So Tony, I love this and I got so many other questions, but you said a lot of people buy franchises for a turnkey business that they could hire somebody very good, pay them a reasonably amount of money and uh, just make a, a pretty passive income. Tell me a little bit about how that works out and, and it, can that still be successful? Because there's a lot of people out there that might say, you know what, I might sell my business and get involved in, in a done for you type franchise business. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I mean, so we have what we would call semi-absentee owners, and then we have the owner-operators, or we have uh, spouses that work together in the business. I'm not a believer or a fan of a real absentee owner business. I mean, if you're going to invest money in an operating business, you're going to need to spend time on it. You might not be able to spend, you know, work on it nine to five during work hours if you've got a job, but when you come home, you should be spending time on it. On the weekends, you should be spending time on it. And if you're not, you really have to question your commitment level and whether or not you're really cut out to be a business owner because I just don't think that's, that's workable. So then, you know, semi-absentee, look, if you hire the right person and you give them the right skills and the tutor and you're looking at it as a bridge, to allow you to get your business scaled so that you can leave and do it full-time. We've got a lot of people that have done that and made that work and be successful. You got to get good people though. And so you got to demonstrate that you know how to hire people and you know how to retain people. And that's really important. So, you know, I think where we've had our greatest success is where people just jump in with both feet right from the very beginning and say, look, I've, I've made a decision. I'm leaving my job. Or sometimes that decision has been made for them. You know, I, I don't have a job and I want to go full on in this. People are always surprised at how well they can do it. They begin to believe in themselves. They're scared at first, but when you get in there and they know that they got the support that we're going to provide them, we're not going to let them fail. You know, we're going to work like heck. If they're willing to work like heck, we're going to work like heck. And we're going to help them be successful. And it's incredibly rewarding to see these people get into their own business, be successful. And in some cases, really question whether or not they could do it. But once you get in there and get it going, you realize that good work ethic becomes critical. And uh, a lot of people can be very successful. I love it. You said 10% of net income. Explain to me uh, for, for our... 10% of revenue. Sorry, 10% of revenue. Net revenue. Oh, net revenue. Okay. So net revenue is determined... That yeah, we just take off... We just take off discounts. And so, you know, sometimes in order to attract customers, we, we will, you know, there'll be offers that go out to give them first-time discounts. So what we do is we just, we don't charge the franchisee on the gross if they're not taking that in. So really what we try to do is just charge them 10% on the revenue, the actual revenue that they're earning. We call it net revenue. And then how does that, I'm just curious because you, you obviously do all the marketing. How does that get uh, paid for? Does that get paid for? Yeah, yeah marketing is completely separate. So uh, there's two types of marketing support that we we provide. One is the there's a two percent brand fee that's paid by the franchisee that goes into a fund, and that's used for you know broadly for building the brand. It can be used for you know dedicated pay per click in certain markets, but it's really up to our discretion on how we use that, and we're accountable to the franchisees, and the bulk of it gets put back into the markets where it came from. But by pooling the money, it allows us to you know, buy things like XM radio, as an example. We do some of that as well. 
the direct mail, the SEO, those are all, it's, it's like a the way to think about it is we almost have like an in-house separate vendor and we've negotiated what the rates are. And that's what the uh, franchisee pays. So, oh, you know, market-based rates, but there's an agreement that you've got to do. You got to send out 90,000 pieces of direct mail. Here's what your cost per piece is. Go ahead and pay that. And then here's the SEO, how much you're going to pay per month. And that's just charged on a monthly basis. I love that. So, Typically, the rule of thumb that everybody says is 10%. I'm a big fan of going above 10% in marketing when you're trying to penetrate a market. Typically, as far as total revenue, what percentage do you guys think you spend and what do you recommend? On marketing, that's a good question. That's a great question. So, you know, early days, you don't have any, you don't have much revenue. So it's going to be much higher. Steady state, though, what we've, what we've put into our agreements is that franchisees must spend a minimum of X, you know, a minimum of the, the greater of this, which is the fixed dollar amount I told you, the $30,000 or $35,000 or 8% of previous year's revenue. Okay. So let's give you an example. So if uh, a business gets to say last year, we did a million dollars in a territory, the fixed dollar requirement was $35,000 they had to spend but 8% of a million is $80,000. The requirement is they need to spend $80,000 on marketing in that next year. Does that make sense? hundred percent. It's either 35,000. So basically 35,000 would be somewhere around 400. If they make more than $400,000, they're going to spend 8% of that. If they make less than that, they're going to spend the 35,000. That's it. That's exactly right. That's the break point. And that's critical because, you know, this is where, we should be aligned. The franchise or the franchisee should be aligned. But historically, I've seen that not always be the case. And some people are comfortable. You know, they get to a million bucks. They're making a couple hundred thousand dollars of cash flow over an eight-month period. And that's good enough for them, right? And so, and they could, instead of making 200000 they said, well, I could make 250000 I just don't have to spend money on marketing. I've got all these customers. We're in a young, emerging, fast-growing segment of pest control you know, my experience is you don't take your foot off the accelerator, you press it down harder and you keep penetrating and you get the density. And so that's what we've done. And that's what the purpose of that approach for marketing is. We want people to always be growing their business and not get comfortable with where they are. I love that concept. I really like what you've done with this whole business. You mentioned that hiring is a big deal. And I, I got to tell you, everybody listening out there and myself included, hiring's definitely been a challenge. I offer people a lot of good things to come on board and it's, we've got a great training program for my garage door company. But as far as really recruiting and getting great A players and really giving them the coaching and leadership they need, tell me a little bit about how you're finding the people and where you're going and how you're recruiting. So... Yeah, so I guess a couple. So for my corporate team, we do a lot of different things. So we'll we'll use LinkedIn, we'll use Monster, we'll use Indeed, we'll use search firms. So I'm happy to pay, you know, a healthy commission to a search firm if they find the right person. But we do a broad search. So like if I think about the team I've got in place here, we've hired people from. I'm in Virginia Beach. We've hired people from Texas, Arizona, Illinois, Georgia. Florida. I mean, we've hired them from all over the place. And so we didn't want to limit ourselves just to the area where we're at. Happy to fly people in for interviews. We might do some interviews over the phone first, but you know, happy to just make sure we get the right people. That's the most important thing. And so what we usually do is we like to, you know, try to remove, you know, we, the resume will come in. We try to remove any bias that we may have when we see somebody. So we just do telephone interviews initially. And if we feel there's a, a good competency on the other end, and that's sort of what we try to assess first is, you know, how competent would these people be in the position that we're hiring? You know, what's their background? What's their skill set? Have they done this before? What's been their experience? And then if we feel there's a good, good competency experience, then we will bring them in for an in-person interview. And that's usually for a day. And then they go through you know, the whole senior leadership team will interview them. And then depending on the departments they're in, they will, they will be interviewed by them too. So I, anybody that gets a job here at, 
at our company, Buzz Franchise Brands, I've absolutely met every single person, as has my senior leadership team. And that's a requirement I put in place. And so then when they get here, then you know, I don't know a lot about SEO pay-per-click. I know enough to know what it does, but I don't know a lot of the technical part of it. I'm counting on my team to make that assessment on the individual. Uh, what I'm going to assess is the fit. Is this, does this person have... You know, are they going to follow the values of our company? We've got five core values. I, I talk to them about our core values and get their views on those core values. Are they somebody that I like to spend some time with? Do I feel like they'd be a good fit with the rest of the company? What do they like to do outside the office for fun? Um, those are things we try to we try to gauge. And uh, and uh, if we feel they've got a good competency and they're going to be a good fit with the company, and then we make an offer. But, you know, we're I, I feel like... You know, we're, we're, we're in the franchising business and you probably feel this way too, Tommy, but you're also in the hiring business. I mean, I just feel like I'm hiring all the time. I, I feel like I'm interviewing all the time. And so you just got to get used to that and get your mind around that because it's a, it's a very important part of the business. Oh, it's huge. And I think, so what are your franchise, your franchisees do when they're looking for actually the physical driving the truck, spraying the homes? What do they look for? And how does that process work? Yeah. How do you support them? Yeah. So that- Post on Indeed, Monster, and all over the place, or how does yeah, that? Yeah, the technician. Yeah, so you know, I think this is one of the areas in franchising over the last few years where it has been, you know, that the National Labor Relations Board has been, you know, the rulings that they've taken has caused a lot of franchisors to step back a little bit to figure out how much support they actually provide with the hiring, the recruiting, the training of technicians. In this case, the the, the employees of the franchisee. It might be swinging back. Uh, shortly, so we'll have to see. But we had to step back a little bit for that. So you know, we tell them where to go, how to look. You know, what our job is is an outdoor. You know, two of the three brands are outdoor brands, and what we find is we can we can recruit people like firemen, police officers, you know, leaders in the community, people that already have jobs, but they've got a lot of flexibility in their jobs. In some cases, college kids. And then others that are looking for part-time jobs because it is seasonal. It has its own unique challenges. But you know, our franchisees have just done a wonderful job in finding great people to to execute the plan that we've uh, we've helped put in place with them. But I'm not going to say it's not. It's I think it's probably the single biggest issue for the company. I mean, finding customers. We're we're great at recruiting customers and we're great at keeping them. Uh, just continuing to find good people to work is always the challenge. So you've got all the analytics, like for my system, I use a company called Service Titan. It actually tracks every single call. I track it down to the search term that the people put into Google. Like I've got even Valpac per 10,000 zone. I've got a separate phone number. I have 700 zones now, I think on a national level. So we've got it down to like the T. I know what marketing kills it. I know what doesn't. I mean, my wrap trucks are my number one source of phone calls because I've got well over a hundred of them on the road that are getting for the cost. It's by far the best. What do you think your best marketing source has been over the years now at Mosquito Joe's? Yeah, sure. So consistently every year, the number one source for new customers ours is our direct mail program. Okay. We, we recruit 30 to 40% of all new customers through the direct mail program that, and, and directly. And you know, I should step back a little bit, Tommy. You know, our direct mail program is both a direct response vehicle, but it's also a brand building vehicle. You know, we're a relatively new company in a new segment. And so we still think it's the, the best way to get the word out to our targeted customers is they get this big, bright yellow postcard in their, uh, in their mailbox. So uh, historically, 30 to 40% comes from that. The next largest source was yard signs. We put yard signs when we do the services. Uh, that's worked really well for us. That's probably another 15%. That has changed over the years. Digital now, more broadly speaking, digital is now the second largest and fastest growing segment. That's probably now 20%. And then that digital could be pay-per-click. It could be just coming in through the web. could be Facebook ads that, that, are, that are put out. And then the vehicle would be probably, at this point, uh, referrals would probably be third, and that's uh, roughly around uh, 15 to 20%. And then the vans are uh, are after that. And then there's a smattering. But it's about four sources. It's, it's yard signs, it's vans, it's digital, and it's the, um, it's the direct mail. So 
I'm trying to figure out the company, but it might be like Orkin or Truly Nolan, but one of them is worth like an outrageous amount of money. I don't remember exactly. It's, it's Rollins. Rollins. Okay. So is that was that something you took into consideration when you when you got into this industry? Yeah, they were that bit. Yeah, they were the, they were the thousand pound gorilla, and they could come in and crush us. <laughs> Not really crush you guys, but I mean, did you take into the consideration just of how much money they make? I mean, it's like it's outrageous. Yeah, I mean, they make. Yeah, my view was somewhat simplistic. So I think I get asked the question a lot by prospects when they come through. You know, are you concerned about the big guys getting into this business? You know, the Rollins of the world, the Truly Nolans, and I was like, they've been in this business. You know, they were in this business before I was in this business. The issue is, is how they branded themselves. And so Rollins through Orkin has branded themselves as this in-house pest control company that takes care of roaches and, and, and other stuff inside the home. We've branded ourselves as the mosquito experts outside the home. And so, you know, if done well, a brand is a very powerful thing. I mean, it's got a promise associated with it and it's a very powerful thing. It's hard to switch. Like, you know, Starbucks doesn't get upset when McDonald's starts offering lattes, right? It'll be a nice little add-on maybe for McDonald's, but it's not going to put a dent in the Starbucks uh, plan. Uh, our view has always been the same, which is we compete against with everybody. If, uh, if the lawn doctor wants to offer mosquito services, which they've done, that's great. They're going to get a few customers, but it's not going to be their dominant business. And people aren't going to call them first because they're known as the lawn doctor. And they're not known as the mosquito or tick guy. You know, if I got into lawn services to compete against lawn doctor, uh, I don't think he'd be too concerned about that. So that's where I think, so So getting back to your original question, then was I concerned about the big guys? I really wasn't. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I believe in the power of the franchisee, the local content. I thought we could put a, a system in place that could really support them. And I knew how they had branded themselves. And we were going to brand ourselves very differently. You know, more as a lifestyle brand, something new and fresh in the industry. That's brilliant. I love it. So you, you said direct mail. A lot of people think direct mail is dead. You, you accumulate, you got 40% of your customer base through direct mail. Tell me a little bit about, is it a, is it a mail piece? Is it a jumbo postcard? Is it a, like something they take out of a letterhead? What is that direct mail piece yeah. like? And how do you guys find your perfect avatar to mail to? Yeah, so we procure the list and we have our own proprietary criteria that we use of who those people are that we want to target, who would be our buyers. And we then go out to the data houses and there's about three big ones in the, in the country. And uh, we buy the list based on what we think are the right parameters. We then take that list and then we create a creative. It's a six and a half by 10 inch six stock uh, separate card uh, with the person's name gets put right on it. It's got a call to call to action, usually an offer on there. There's an area where they can scan and go to a landing site if they want to do that. But it's, it's an incredibly bright piece that stands out. And the thing we do, Tommy, which is most companies don't do, and they don't do it because it's very difficult to do. I happen to be fortunate. I got a great team of creative people here, but we use a lot of humor in our marketing. So this bright yellow card will show up and it will say, you know, should you decide not to call us, save this card for swatting? Or are you tired of donating blood on the way to the mailbox? And it's got our logo and it just causes people to smile. And, you know, our view is if done well, humor will trigger that memory again when they've got that point of pain, which in our cases are getting bit by mosquitoes. And so we just feel that our piece really stands out. I don't buy into the fact that direct mail is dead and, and candidly, I'm not sure it's ever going to be dead because it is as the, as the inbox gets filled up, the mailbox has a lot more room in it. And we're finding that our card just continues to stand out of our, above everybody else's. And it's a great source for us. And maybe it's because of how we do it, but it definitely works for us. Yeah. I love the concept. I want to ask you some questions. I'll, you know, I'll wrap it up here in a few minutes, but what happens if uh, you guys take your 10% typically in the home service is 18 to 22% profit margin. Uh, some people are going upwards of 30 to 40 because there's not a lot of cost of goods sold and the labors are not ridiculous. Have you ever had a, a franchisee kind of not actually be profitable? I mean, what do you do in that type of situation? I'm just curious for the listeners out there that think about going yeah. into this. 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really clear with everybody when they come in. And we tell them, and I tell them, everybody, you're not going to make money in your first year, your first season. It's a seasonal business. You got to build up your business. If you do it well, by the second year, you'll start breaking even. You'll start seeing some positive cash. But, you know, take a long-term vision on this business. And if you do that, you're going to build up your customer base and you're going to have a loyal base that comes back every year. You're going to wake up in a few years and you're going to be happy you did this. If you start getting impatient right out of the gate, this business isn't for you. So we do, but we, just like any other system, we have territories that aren't successful, franchisees that aren't successful. It's almost never because there's no mosquitoes, right? There's mosquitoes everywhere. If they came to us in the first place, there's mosquitoes everywhere, right? So it's never yeah. because there's no mosquitoes. It's never, I mean, we compete against everybody. It's never about the competition. So the only thing that's left is the operator. And, you know, we do our best to try to you know, make sure that we assess the person when they come in that they're going to be there the right type of operator, but you never truly know until they've actually gotten in the business and, and, and done it. And some people just aren't cut out for business ownership for one reason or another. And there's a, there's a handful of reasons, but they might, they might not be cut out for it. So what we try to do is we say, look, you know, it doesn't look like this business is for you. Do you agree with that? And we try to work out a graceful way for them to exit the business. We try to assist them in selling what they have. If they've got something to sell, if they don't have something to sell, we just tell them, I don't feel like you got much to sell here, but we'll try to get the territory off your hands. We're not going to make you pay these extra fees that you're obligated to pay. There's no reason to sort of compound the problem. I mean, our goal here is to, you know, usually if we think it's a mistake, they probably think that they're in a situation that's not right for them too. So the ideal way is just try to work out a graceful exit for both parties. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes it's not easy. Your job is to make it as easy as possible, but also to assess the right franchisee for the position, but it doesn't always work that way. I mean, I, unfortunately, even my managers that we call market managers sometimes are just not the right people and there's nothing wrong with that, but you can't win every time. And, uh, I understand that surely everybody out there understands that. I mean, you guys, you guys won Inc magazine's best places to work for in 2017. You won Let's see here. Entrepreneurs franchise 500 list, the top 200 franchise in 2017. But then you just won the FBR 50 for 2018 franchise award. I mean, what do you think you're doing differently? You got a great team, first of all, and that's first and foremost. But yeah. what is it that's causing you to win all these awards and make it such a great place to work for? You know, I think it comes down to initially, I mean, I, I really view my primary role is to take care of my team and take care of my employees. Because if I think if I do a good job of that, they're then going to take care of our franchisees and, and the support that we provide. But the way we do that, we do that in a number of different ways. You know, we got we got a set of five core values that we live by here. And we, we, we recognize those, honor those. We set up what we call a, uh, a sanity control committee. It's called our SCC. And what they do is uh, they, it's a group of five people from different parts of the company that I've selected. And I get together with them on a regular basis and we plan out a calendar. And the calendar is a, uh, is a fun event on a monthly basis. It is also a quarterly lunch and learn that we do. So I might take everybody to Top Golf uh, for a Friday afternoon. We might do a, I might bring somebody in and do a wine tasting one afternoon, one night, whatever it may be. And a lot of the idea is just, come right from the team. So, you know, tell me what you think is fun. What would you like to do? We put a calendar together for a full year, uh, similar with the lunch and learns. We may bring somebody in that can talk about wealth management, can talk about fitness, whatever people find interesting. I want them to feel like when they come to work, they're coming not to work. They're coming to a place where they've got a lot of people that they enjoy being around and that they're here to support our franchisees. And so we talk a lot about that. We talk about the importance of supporting our franchisees, but we try to create an environment where people are challenged, where they enjoy coming uh, to the office and feel really good about it. And we listen and we communicate well. So those are all the things we try to do. And, you know, and as a result, you know, getting things like you know, Outside Magazine's Best Workplaces or Inc. Magazine Best Workplaces, what that allows me to do is it builds on itself. It allows me to recruit more great people because great people want to work at great companies. And so it's really a, a very effective recruiting tool for us as well. And it's nice to get the accolades. I mean, I think people feel good about seeing those awards and being part of a company that, that takes that stuff seriously. So we work hard at it. It's a lot of hard work, but it's definitely worth it. 
All right. I'm going to close out here with a few more and I promise I'll let you go. So one of the things I do at the end is try to tell everybody where they can find you, but I don't want to go there just yet. I want to talk about your mission, vision, and the five core values. I'd love to hear them. And I'd love to let the listeners kind of understand the way you came up with those and why it's so important for, for who you became and what the company is today. And just, just go over what those are and how you came up with those with your team. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that, Tommy. I mean, I think, you know, our vision is to be a leading multi-brand franchising company providing services to the home. So, you know, we we developed that vision. We think it's very clear with what we do. And, you know, what you'll see from us over the next several years is just incremental brands that are incubated and, and then growing. The thing that gets me up every day and coming into work that I really like is our mission, which is enable people to realize their dreams. And, you know, so as much as I love, you know, killing mosquitoes and cleaning pools and cleaning homes, what I really love is helping people get into their own business and supporting them to be successful. So whatever their dreams are, we want to understand that, whether it's, it's two buddies, lifelong buddies that want to own a business together, or it's a, it's a spouse, a couple that want to get into business together. You know, we've got a woman that was uh, a hospice nurse for 15 years and said, I can't do that anymore, but I still want to get back to the community. She's one of our better franchisees and she's, she didn't know anything about business and we were able to teach her that. So enable people to realize their dreams is our, is our mission, something we really, really live by. And then our five core values are uh, lead with integrity, be curious and innovate, have fun, empower and serve, and then act with purpose. And yeah, you know, there's, I won't go into the details, but under each of those are, are things that we live by. So we have little mouse pads with our values on them. We have them hanging here. We recognize them. We recognize employees that are living those values. Uh, it's just really important to us. So, and it's only five. So it's a, it's a number that I can remember as well, which is important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the biggest things we're working on is really grown so much. We really got to realign with what our, our main mission is. And when we were 10 people versus 200 now, you know, I think it's important yeah. and where you are, where you're evolving and changing. I mean, Google, Google at one point was to do no evil <laughs> and then and, uh, they grew beyond that. But, uh, you know, I think this has been amazing. And the last questions I ask are two is if someone's interested in getting a franchise, you, you've talked about three main franchises you're working on. You've got the mosquito, you've got the pool cleaning business, and then you've got the residential home cleaning. How would they get a hold of you and find out more about these franchises? Yeah, I mean, the, easy, the easiest way you can go uh, just to our, our uh, corporate site, which is buzzfranchisebrands.com, B-U-Z-Z franchisebrands.com. That's the easiest way. Or uh, And then there's a there's a menu there. It can take you to each of the brands that we own, take you right to the franchise development sites. Or if you want to go, it's mosquitojoefranchise.com, poolscoutsfranchise.com, or homecleanheroes.com. We don't have the franchise site up yet with Home Clean Heroes. But I think the easiest way would be to go to Buzz Franchise Brands. Perfect. And as far as you, if somebody's got a question and they want to reach out to you, do you have a good LinkedIn or maybe an email address that if, if they had a specific question? Yeah, sure. They can they can reach me at kwilson at buzzfranchisebrands.com or they can find me at uh, Kevin Wilson, Buzz Franchise Brands on LinkedIn too and happy to reply that way. But love to connect with people. Perfect. And is there, is there any books that you recommend or anything that really took you to the next level as far as whether it's recruiting, managing, marketing, or just setting up a franchise or, or something that really stands out that really moved you in a positive way? You know, there was a, there's, I, I read a lot too. And you know, I, I forget a lot of the books I read. I just remember some of the lessons I learned from those books. There is one book I remember reading a long time ago, and it was written a long time ago, but it's called The Effective Executive. And it's a very thin little book written by uh, Drucker. And uh, it just talks about, you know, the importance of being efficient and effect, you know, efficient and effective in what you do. And he talks about just how people think about their time, how people think about prioritizing things. It's a very simple, easy to read book with a lot of really good ideas in there. And even though it was written years ago before the internet came up, it's all still relevant to today. Very good. And last but not least, is there any last things that you'd like to share with our listeners that maybe I didn't touch upon or a final thought? 
Yeah, no, not really, Tommy. I thought it was a great, yeah, great questions, great interview. Uh, you know, we're very passionate about what we do here at Buzz Franchise Brands. Franchising is our business. We love supporting franchisees and we want people to realize their dreams and we think we play a part in doing that. So if anybody out there is interested in, uh, in partnering with a, a great group of people, uh, just uh, give us a call. We'd love to help you out. Great. Well, listen, Kevin, I really appreciate you jumping on today. I learned a ton and uh, I think everybody out there did. So maybe once you get your other franchises up, uh, we could talk about how they've grown up maybe in six months. But this has been great. Once again, I thank you for jumping on today. Thanks, Tommy. All the best. Bye-bye. Hey, guys, I really appreciate you tuning into the podcast. I wanted to let you know that my book is available right now on Amazon. It's called The Home Service Millionaire. That's homeservicemillionaire.com. Just go to the website. It'll show you exactly where and how to buy the book. I poured two years of knowledge into this book and I had 12 contributors. Everybody from the COO at Home Advisor to the CEO of Valpac and of course, Ara, the CEO of Service Titan. It tells you how to have the right mindset and become a millionaire and think like a millionaire. It goes into exactly how to turn on lead generation. Have those phones ringing off the hook for the customers that you want to be calling where you can make money and get great reviews. It also goes into simple things like how to attract A players. Listen, if you want a great apple pie, you need to buy good apples and you need to know where to buy those apples. And it also talks about simple things like knowing how to keep the score. You should have your financial check every week. You should know exactly what's coming in and out of your account. You should know when to cut advertising that's not working. And more than anything, you should know how to cut employees that aren't making it for you. Listen, you might have a big heart, but this book is going to show you how to make decisions built on numbers. I hope you pick up the book and I really appreciate everything. I hope you're having a great day. Tune in next week. Thank you.